0: I'm always told that I should be very careful with my illustrations that I use in a sermon. Uh, Forgive me, this is not uh, the kind of careful illustration that you might hope for, uh, but I need to tell you, because I think it helps the point that I'd like to make in the text, to tell you about a very messy predicament that Allie and myself got into recently. And again, this is not a heartwarming illustration. But I think it will help the biblical point be memorable. If nothing else, this illustration will be memorable. But what I want to give you a backdrop is from is to, to remember that I was not raised in the Bahamas. And so everything I know about life is through the filter and context of being raised in a different country, being raised in Canada. And, and what I know about Canada is all the homes I've ever lived in... We're in neighborhoods where the houses were fairly close together, and in Canada, wherever you have neighborhoods with homes closely uh, connected, you had a sewer system. I know. See, it's not pleasant. So homes in Canada, closely connected to one another, are all tied in to to a sewer system. So when I moved here. I moved into a particular neighborhood where the homes were similarly close together. So I made the assumption that just like all the homes I've ever lived in in Canada, that the home I was now living in in Nassau was a part of a sewer system. Now I realize there are septic tanks and septic systems, but in Canada those are for people who live in the country. Those are for people whose neighbors are several kilometers away. If you lived near people, you were on the sewer system. So about six months ago, so keep in mind that's about five and a half years I've been living here. Six months ago, we began to notice some strange smells outside our bedroom window. And I really couldn't account for these smells because, again, we were on a sewer system here in NASA. So maybe there's something wrong with the sewer system, but we really couldn't make sense of the smell outside our bedroom. Well, as time went on, and as I continued to ignore the smell, the smell got worse. Much worse. But I was completely oblivious to what the actual problem was. Finally, a couple of months ago, I looked out into my backyard and I saw a peculiar looking puddle. And what was peculiar about the puddle is that it had not rained in more than eight days. So it immediately became obvious that I had a very serious problem. And it became immediately clear we were not connected to a sewer system. Now can you imagine, after discovering what the problem is, can you imagine me ignoring this problem? Because pretending that I didn't have a problem would have been a terrible mistake. It would have been equally foolish of me if I were to try to cover up the problem. Maybe shovel some dirt from my garden and try to cover up this puddle so that I didn't have to look at it. And maybe shoveling some dirt on it would diminish the smell. No, it would have been a terrible idea to ignore the problem. And it would have been a dreadful idea to try and cover it up. So why do I give you this very unpleasant illustration? Because the Bible tells us something very unpleasant about ourselves. The Bible tells us that we have a very, very serious sin problem. The Bible tells us that our sin has made a mess of things and has set us against our Creator. The Bible tells us that our sin has gotten in the way of us having a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And as you might imagine, pretending that we don't have a sin problem Is a terrible idea. And it is an equally bad idea to try and cover up our sin. Our sin is too serious to ignore. And it's too pervasive to try and cover it up. We need a remedy that adequately deals with our sin. And the message from the author of Hebrews is that Israel's sacrificial system was not an adequate remedy for sin. This sacrificial system, ordained by God, fulfilled an important role, but it wasn't the remedy. It pointed to the remedy, it prepares us for the remedy. But it's not the remedy. The New Testament explains that the sacrifice of animals was designed to aggravate the human conscience. Because they took no delight in killing these unblemished, valuable animals. But the system aggravated their conscience and caused them to recognize just how serious their sin was. That blood would need to be shed because of it. The sacrificing of these animals and the subsequent sprinkling of their blood was also intended to signify God's forgiveness of sin. But there were shortcomings with this sacrificial system. The sacrifices of unblemished animals needed to be repeated over and over and over again as sin was repeated. Furthermore, the sacrifices did not bring about any change in the way the people behaved. In other words, the sacrificial system was inadequate, ineffective in dealing decisively with sin. And while the the sacrifice of animals and the sprinkling of their blood signified, pointed to God's forgiveness, look at what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 4. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins so here you have generation after generation animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice ordained by god symbolic of his forgiveness and we're told in hebrews 10:4 it's impossible for any of those sacrifices to take away sin And this is important. This is an important verse for those who might want to suggest that the manner in which God saves us changes over time. I have heard Christians say, well, in the Old Testament, God saved people differently. In the Old Testament, if they obeyed the law and if they did the animal sacrifices and if they completed the ceremonies, then they got to go to heaven. And in the New Testament, you put your faith in Jesus, and that's how you went to heaven. But the Bible does not make that distinction. The manner in which we engage God is different, covenant to covenant. But the way to get God's favor, the way to be saved, the way to get into heaven, there's only one way. We are unable to say... There is nothing in scripture that points to Israel being saved by their good deeds. Nothing that points to Israel being saved by keeping the law and killing the animals. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this poses a very serious problem when we start to cross-reference what the author of Hebrews is telling us with what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. Because in Romans 3.23, we get some bad news. Paul declares that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So you've got, on the one hand, this universal problem, all have sinned, But then we're told that the sacrificing of animals does not deal with any of those sins. So what was the sacrificial system all about? Why would God ordain something that functionally wasn't effective? What the sacrificial system did was it served as a powerful and clear preview of God's ultimate remedy for sin. In order to help us recognize the real remedy, the real answer, in order for us to see it and say, there it is, this is God's way of doing it. He gave us a preview. He gave us a trailer of how sin would be done with. Look at how Hebrews chapter 10 begins. Since the law has but a shadow... Of the good things to come instead of the true form of the, these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What's being said here, the message to the Jewish readers in Hebrews is that the ceremonial law was a shadow. That means it's temporary. That means it's provisional. And it need not be perpetuated in the face of the true form of things. In other words, God's answer for sin, God's remedy for sin is Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And that is the only remedy for sin. Not only is it the only remedy for sin, but it's the only remedy for all people of all time. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the remedy for all the sins that preceded his earthly life. It is the way to do away sin for all those who lived during the time of Christ, and it is the way to do away of sin for all of us here today. Look at Hebrews 10 verse 12. We're told that Christ's sacrifice for sins was for all time. It's not for a particular dispensation, as some might say. It's not in particular to the new covenant. But the sacrifice of Jesus was effective for people of every age. And that helps us make sense of something Paul says in Romans 3.25. And if you're reading Romans 3.25 without these considerations, you might struggle. In Romans 3.25, we're told how the death of Christ was designed to show God's righteousness because in His forbearance, He had passed over former sins. That's the key part. In God's forbearance, He had passed over, He had not punished, He had not dealt with former sins. What is Paul saying? Paul's essentially saying there's a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of Old Testament saints who are enjoying heaven's benefits before the thing that paid for those benefits had occurred. Because sacrificing bulls and goats didn't get the Old Testament saints into heaven. In here, adherence to the law, did not get the Old Testament saints into heaven. God exercised a kind of forbearance until Jesus offered, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, and the sacrifice of Jesus was a better sacrifice. It was the only effective sacrifice. Only the sacrifice of Jesus was effective in dealing with sin. Accordingly, the grand message of the book of Hebrews is that since Christ has procured forgiveness for sin, we need not pursue righteousness from any other source. Since Jesus is the only way to gain God's favor, we need not go anywhere else for righteousness. And to make this point, the author painstakingly contrasts the old system with the new system. The old system needed many priests, the new system, only one priest. The old system needed repeated sacrifices. The new system needed but one sacrifice, Jesus. The old system did nothing to change or impact the behavior of God's people. But the new process, the new system, began a process whereby God makes us perfect. I know as human beings we think, I'm not perfect. Of course we're not perfect. We'll never be perfect on this side of heaven. We will only be perfect when we die or when Christ returns and we spend eternity with Him. However, in the new system, by the work of Jesus, you and I are in a process by faith whereby we look more and more like Jesus as we engage Him by faith. The Old Testament law did nothing to change the heart of men and women. The New Testament because of the presence of God's Spirit, because of the power of the gospel, men and women are changed. We're conformed increasingly to the image of the one who died for us. And that's why we trust in Him alone. I love the way that D.J. Ward in the video put it. Jesus did not try to save. He did not want to save. He actually saved. And we ought not to say Jesus paid some of it, but Jesus paid all of it. But what I have found is that we may not be like those first century Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to the ceremonies. We may feel no inclination to do the Jewish ceremonies of washing or sacrificing animals. We may not be tempted to any of those things. But my observation is that 21st century Christians feel the temptation to earn their way. That what we have in common with, with the ancient Christians is the sense that we need to do something. Well, we need to do a number of things, but there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing we can do to put away sin. Any contribution we make happens after the fact. It happens within the process of being made like the one who saves us. Well, pastor, you're saying I'm tempted to earn my own way. How do I do that? What do you you see uh, in the church? What do you see in the Christian community that would indicate? I know there are people who are thinking, well, I don't go to church, but I'm a very spiritual person. And I pray regularly. I talk to God every single day. Praying is a very important exercise, as you know. But praying cannot deal with your sin. Praying cannot pay for the sin that you've committed against God. Some would say, you know, I I read through my Bible every year. I've got this program and I'm very diligent. Every morning I wake up and I read my Bible... And again, this is commendable. We should all be doing this. But reading our Bible does not put away sin. Then there are some who will say, you know, I attend St. Andrew's Kirk. I attend the church down the street every single week without fail. I even go when I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. I'm a very faithful person at going to church. We want people to be faithful at coming to church. We we want you to be here week after week. But it's important to remember that being here week after week does not put away our sin. It does not get us forgiveness. And probably the most widely held notion I hear from people is they will say, well, I try very hard to be nice to everyone. I mean, I know the golden rule. And I'm always trying to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And and I'm always trying to do what's right by a person, and sometimes I even, you know, at the expense of my own needs, I try to help everyone I can. But it's important to remember that our best efforts to be nice does not put away our sin. It does not deal with our sin. Our best efforts to be a good person will not pave a way for us to get into heaven. Our sincere efforts to be nice, I want keep being nice. It matters to be nice, it matters to be kind, but it's important to know that being kind is no more effective at saving you than sacrificing a bull or a goat. So after saying all that, you know, I've torn down your prayer life, I've taken away your incentive to read the Bible, I've taken away your motivation to come next Sunday, you're not even thinking you're going to be nice to people anymore, what hope is there? Our hope's not in a system. Our hope's not in a system. Our hope is not tied to ticking off a bunch of boxes. Our hope is not tied to keeping a number of rituals. Our hope is not in ourselves. And that's simply the grand point being made here in the book of Hebrews. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. It's not in ourselves. It's in Him. Who, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. We don't hope in ourselves, we hope in Him. As our hymn well puts it, I will not boast in anything no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death. And resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom. Or as Charles Spurgeon has ably said, from top to bottom, <coughs> From foundation to pinnacle, our hopes must be in the work of Jesus. And we must trust in him alone, or else we shall build in vain. Again, only in Christ do we have an effective remedy for sin. Sin is a very serious problem. But thankfully, the death of God's Son is a perfect remedy. So once we become aware of our predicament, and I hope this isn't news for anyone here. If, if you've been attending the church for any amount of time, you'll appreciate sin is serious. So once you become aware of the predicament that your sin and my sin has placed us in, we have three options. Number one, we can pretend that sin really isn't that serious. So let's just forget about it, ignore it, and keep doing what we've always done. Secondly, realizing that sin is a serious problem, we can try to hide it. We can try to cover it up. We can do everything possible to keep other people from seeing our sin. Or thirdly, realizing that sin is a serious problem, we can ask Jesus to clean up the mess for us. It is my great delight to report to you that there's no longer a smell in my backyard. And there's no longer a smell in my backyard because I stopped pretending that there wasn't a problem. I realized there was a problem. And when I realized there was a problem in my yard, I didn't try to cover it up. I didn't try to shovel some dirt on it. What I did is I asked a professional to come clean up the mess for me. Sure, I was unwilling, uh, but I was also unable. I lacked the instruments, I lacked the tools to clean up this mess. Well, friends, we lack the tools to clean up our own mess of sin. And so I want to encourage you. Jesus came to this earth to clean up our mess. I know we're embarrassed by our mess. I know we're mortified by our sin. But we need to remember that God knew what we would do, He knew the mess we would make, and He made provision for a remedy. I'm embarrassed by my sin. But pretending it isn't there isn't going to save me. Trying to cover it up isn't going to save me. Jesus came to clean up my mess and I'm begging him to do so. And he wants to. And he will. Jesus will clean up your mess. And he will clean up mine. If we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will put away all our sin for all time. When you place your faith, not in yourself, but when you place your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, you can sing and praise joyfully all day long. You know, we sang a hymn that we, at the conference I went to last week, we sang a hymn that we sometimes sing here. It is well with my soul. And I need to tell you, there was ten thousand people at this conference. We were in an arena, and I can tell you, only a piano was accompanying us. So, ten thousand voices, mostly men, mostly pastors, singing, "It is well with our soul, my soul." It was loud, and it was passionate. And here's, there's a number of reasons, and Gavin might give you different reasons for why it was passionate. But here's one reason, among probably a few, why I think it was so loud. Pastors have an acute sense of their sin. Pastors who try to connect with God have an acute sense of how messed up they are. And so we sang that hymn like no other. And we sang it joyfully. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise my Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's a song for the forgiven. That's a song for you. It's a song for us. In Christ alone. In his sacrifice alone. Our hope is found. Amen.